Tempest Productions presents Under, written by Bibi Berkey. The day I woke up was not like waking up at all, but a kind of unsteady, unready emergence. I opened my eyes and I saw that he'd been crying. He was sitting by the edge of my bed, his head in his hands, and when he lifted his face, I noticed the redness in patches scattered about his cheeks and lacing the white of his eyes. I reached out my hand and touched him on the shoulder and I asked, What's wrong? He stared at me a moment, caught out, and then he opened and closed his mouth wildly and ran from the room, his arms waving, and re-entered almost immediately with a young woman in what looked like green pyjamas. And it was only then that I looked at my bed, and I realised that it wasn't my bed at all, and that the room was completely strange to me. I watched them both as their mouths opened and closed, opened and closed, and wondered why neither could produce a single sound, and why they were looking at me as though they had never expected me to wake up at all. And I wondered why I had not heard myself speak when I'd asked him what was wrong. Not the merest echo of my voice came back to me. Only silence. Thick and sealed. A shutting off from a world whose sounds I'd once taken for granted. Hal told me much, much later that the accident had altered the way he viewed the unfurling of the rest of our lives. I say he told me. Of course, he wrote it down. At that time, anyone who wanted to communicate anything to me had to go to the trouble of writing it or producing very basic gesticulations to illustrate what they were saying. I didn't take to the hearing aid I was given, abandoned it, and sign language was of no use. I didn't want to learn it. Signing would have meant overcoming. I wasn't ready to overcome and move on. I was still waking up, still often wishing I was back in that hospital bed where the injured belong, where there is no sense of wrongness, only a cheerfully nurtured fatalism. Anyway, he felt somehow damaged too, he told me. He'd seen it happen, after all, had watched me step backwards, my attention in my handbag or something someone had said, and I'd been so distracted that my foot had met a void and I went down with it, down onto the tracks, my head landing neatly and with full cataclysmic force on the rail. And it cracked clean in two. Is that what they say? Cracked clean in two? No, it didn't. It, it smacked the rail good and hard and put me to sleep at once. And Hal saw it all. My disappearance over the side. But first, the moment my expression changed from its casual everyday setting to pure bewilderment. Afterwards, he watched 
presumably as they cocooned my head and straightened me in the stretcher and slotted me into the ambulance. The moment of shock was very brief for me, extended for him. All I recall seeing is his face as I went over. My eyes had held onto his as though they might keep me up. Nothing after that. They told me over and again for months after I woke that they didn't quite understand why my hearing ended that day, the day I hit myself into a deep sleep. The concussion, yes, they got that, even the coma, but hearing loss from a fracture tended to be temporary. My hearing was entirely gone, and there was no explanation for it. And then a doctor, her name was Louise Cranach, asked to see me during one of my regular appointments, and I followed her to a small, unremarkable room, and when I sat down, she began to write. She wrote, I'm not a neurologist. I am a specialist who deals with the psychological impact of trauma. Do you understand? I nodded. My colleagues in audiology mentioned your case to me because they thought I could explore other possible explanations for your sudden hearing impairment. They say total auditory loss is very rare for someone in your circumstances. I found talking at that time uncomfortable and strange, so I never spoke. I simply looked at the notepad and waited for her to complete each laborious task. And so she persisted. It may sound weird, but sometimes trauma, particularly temporal trauma, can upset the mind as well as the brain. It can make us change in all manner of unexpected ways. Again, I felt no urge to respond. What I'm trying to say is that perhaps you might find some form of cognitive therapy useful to get to the bottom of what went wrong. You never know. But I did know, or thought I knew. And I shrugged and smiled and shook my head. What did they think they were trying to save me from? At home, unable to tell Hal what Dr. Cranach had said, I moped about the flat and eventually became tearful. He held me and I felt the vibrations of his emerging words as he went about the lengthy process of comforting me. At times like those, I was too caught up in my own tragedy to care to know what he was saying and made no effort to watch his lips or ask him to write it down. It was just emptiness, just meaningless effort to please. But he took me by the shoulders and turned me to face him and insisted that I concentrate. I still couldn't care, so he took his notepad and he wrote it down for me. The accident made me think, Jess. It was so banal. Such an ordinary kind of accident, and yet you could have died. I sat beside you in that hospital for days and I thought, please let her wake up. Please. I told myself that if you did, it would change our lives. Do the things we always talked about. Look at what I've done for us, Jess. He pulled his phone from his pocket and brought it to life. I frowned at him to show him how confused I was by what was going on and to show him that I didn't want to look. I, I feared what was coming. He held it in front of my face, insisted that I took it in. The picture, the words, the figure. I gaped at it. I, I didn't understand its significance. He grabbed the biro and set about his explanation. I bought it, he wrote. <laughs> it's ours. Long ago, it seemed to me so long ago, I had spent the evenings while he watched the telly, 
idly tripping through estate agent sites on my laptop, looking for what I'd call the project of a lifetime. A place to do up, a house that we could transform. But it had been a daydream, nothing more. And I'd happened on this huge Victorian villa in the south coast, crumbling a decrepit place with no intrinsic allure, other than it might one day be brightened and lightened by ingenious new owners. I never imagined that those owners could be us. Even if I pouted and complained him night after night that the house was the adventure that we needed, it had merely been a game of mine. I'd just been talking. Talking but meaning nothing. It was better than talking about the other things, things that mattered to him. I looked at him and I tried to express, how, how have you done this? He wrote, You need a distraction, Jess. Is there a better distraction than this? I looked into his face, remembered it as I had seen it the day I fell, grasping towards him with my eyes, frantic for his help, trying to read him. I wanted to remember his expression then, at the point where my life was balanced, between continuing and ending. What were his eyes saying to me as I fell? How could he have bought us a house I didn't want? What made him act without me? Did, did he think he knew how to cure me? He gave our notice to quit the landlord and we waited no more than a month to move into our new home. Hal commuted to London and I stayed at the house, alone during the day. In the evenings and at the weekends we scraped the yellowed paper off the walls and scrubbed layers of grease from the kitchen floor. The house had five bedrooms and we chose one to sleep in and all our clothes and personal possessions remained in boxes in this room. Hal thought we should strip back the entire house in one go and only then should we think about how we would decorate and furnish it. Everything had to go, he said. The bedrooms would be done up as and when they were needed. I heard nothing. We worked strenuously, but nothing passed through the barrier of my skull. Not even the sound of my own heavy, laboured breaths. When he hammered, the floor shook beneath my feet and I felt a kind of numb buzzing. But nothing else. I looked into his face as he spoke and cringed with the effort of understanding what was being said. People say that their deafness is like trying to hear through a duvet wrapped around their heads or catching something at a great distance or from behind a thick wall. But it wasn't like that for me. My head seemed hollow and impermeable, like a nutshell. And there was not so much as a crack that let in the outside world. There was inside my head and there was outside. I lived in the inside and my connection to the outside had entirely diminished. I had crawled inside that space and felt a decreasing connection to the exterior. After we finished working, Hal would clean himself in the very knocked-together temporary shower beside the kitchen, and I would take myself to the old bathroom. If the rest of the house had been messed with over the years by successive owners, then no one had touched this room. It was dominated by a huge cast-iron bath with brass taps and a hefty brass plug on a thick chain. It had its own bespoke boiler attached to the wall above the taps. 
and which set the bath and the whole room rattling with the effort of producing water of a skin-scalding temperature. Almost as soon as I ran a bath, the room would fill with steam. I never opened the door to let the steam out, but paced through it, as I might through a real marsh mist. Enclosed in it, I felt weightless. To lower myself into the water, sink my head under the surface, the steam blurring the room beyond the bath. Until I heard them. It was a Sunday afternoon. Hal was out shopping. I had undressed in the bedroom while the water was running and arrived in the fog of steam that had built up while I was out. I walked through it and stepped over the high side of the bath, lying down at once, my head submerged. I lay there, only my nostrils above water, my ears beneath. I held my breath, floated, nullified, disconnected from anything beyond the hollow interior of my head. Silence. And then they started talking. Two of them, gossiping, in fact, producing sharp exchanges of snatched information, garbling. I lifted my head out of the water at once. But nothing. Still the same silence that I was used to. I sank back down again, my head underwater once more, and listened. In the distance, I heard them, the two voices returning, as though the coast was clear. Once again, I jerked my head out of the water. Once again, nothing. I tapped the side of the bath with my knuckles, but there was no sound. I got up and put my ear to the bathroom wall, even though I knew we had no neighbours. There was no one anywhere near us. Shivering, I lay back down in the water, my ears submerged once more, closed my eyes, waited. In order to look better. Shh, don't say that. It's true enough. He'll hear you. Let him. If he pulls out any more grey hairs, he'll go bald. See how she likes that. She won't. Tickling little teacups, rustling little packets. You know how it is. Would drive me insane, all that noise. The children are worse. Like rabbits caught in torchlight, stupid things. I wouldn't trust any of them. Look out, door's opening. I raised my head with a jolt. Panicked, looked to the door. But it was still shut. I got out and, naked and damped, I crawled through the condensation on the bathroom floor and looked for them, as though they might be hiding under the radiator or behind the washbasin. Their voices, this fragment of a conversation, were the first sounds I had heard in more than a year. I wrapped myself in the towel and went and lay down on our bed and waited for Hal. At bedtime, Hal retrieved his notepad and asked why I looked so pale and troubled. Are you tired, Jess? He wrote. I was still in the towel, exactly where I had been since leaving the bathroom. He unwrapped it, kissed me on the shoulder. He looked me in the eye and smiled. He reached for the notepad. Too tired? I nodded. Yes, I was too tired. But he took my nod for a signal anyway. He kissed me again and I looked away, over his head, and tried to attach myself to the last threads of my old, known world. The platform, the people... The noise. Could I hear that noise in my memory? The sudden upward rush as I had fallen backwards. The sight of his face, the shock in it, 
the shape of his eyes as they rounded, widened, the opening of his mouth, the end of sound, the reaching out of his hands. Afterwards I got up and headed for the bathroom to run a bath. I glanced behind me and saw that he seemed perturbed by my leaving. Understandably. Another bath? I should have been nestled beside him, as I used to be at such times. Content. Ending my day with him released and exhausted. The steam built and billowed from the surface. Droplets gathered on my face, slipped down my neck. I watched the water level rise, felt the floor tremble with the grinding efforts of the boiler. I knew he would be asleep now. Thought of his face, the switching off, the removal. I was alone. The water was so hot that I sat upright in it for a while, holding my knees in an embrace, watching the thickness of the air. Then at last, I lay back sank instantly under the surface, and I listened. And she expected nothing new there. That's all I heard at first. A scrap of an idea, a remnant of a conversation that had started without me. Are you young? I wondered. You sound so breathless, so desperate to fire out your opinions like you barely have a moment. I wish you would put there and nice is it? Sundays come and go. And then their voices sank and disappeared, and I strained, but nothing came back. I sat up, the water falling away from me, my hair hanging heavy. I tried once more, submerged myself. Chris, like a monkey. Oh, don't. Say what you like, but it's obscene, and the children will never know, now that she's one. The other voice answered at once. She's not one. Hanging on to her like days are numbered. I doubt she even cared they were there. Yes, but to ignore them, cut them right out, it's not natural. No wonder no one wanted to buy the house afterwards. She's so low, she'll pull the poor bastard right down with her. I leapt from the bath, my heart galloping. Who are you? I called. Tell me who you are. But I heard nothing, of course, not even my own words, not even my own heart. I slammed the wall with my fist, and I cried. What happened here? Tell me what happened here! Hal and I went shopping and had lunch in a cafe, where he put his hands over his ears to signify that the place was too raucous. I shrugged and smiled. Not my problem, I indicated. He smiled back and casually picked my hand up off the table. He mouthed the words, I love you. When we got back, he mimed that we ought to get down to stripping the rest of the paper from the hallway, and then went off to get changed. But I stayed in the kitchen and switched on the laptop instead. I found Dr. Cranach's address. Can I ask you something weird? She was at her desk because her answer came within ten minutes. Could my hearing be selective? I mean, is it possible that I can pick up sounds that others can't? My hands covered the keyboard. It was all inside. That's what everything was telling me, that it was all inside. And yet, they were not 
part of me, these breathless talkers, they let me eavesdrop, they meant for me to hear. I can hear people talking, but only at certain times in a certain place. It's happened lots of times. This time she lingered over her answer. Minutes passed. Hal came to the door and waved the scraper at me in mock indignation. I nodded emphatically to tell him that I was on my way. He spun around and left, and as his back disappeared, that's when her answer arrived. Neither of us seem comfortable with the thought that you are hearing voices. It has so many connotations. But we shouldn't skirt around it. That's what you're telling me, right? That you hear voices? In your head? I typed at once. Yes, I hear voices, but... They're not in my head. They can't be. There's nothing in my head, no sound at all. A few minutes later, her considered professional opinion. I should have expected nothing less. Don't be shy about telling me what's happening. I've told you, Jessica, that your condition is not necessarily one that requires only physical healing. As humans, in our art, our education, our society, we obsess about the past. But the brain is not half as interested in the past as it is in the future. There is a growing body of research around the idea that our brains are actively making predictions all the time and looking for meaningful patterns. It's called predictive processing. It's possible that the people who hear voices have brains that are looking for these meaningful patterns in otherwise unfathomable situations. Hearing voices is nothing to be ashamed of or worried about if you look at it in this context. I answered her at once. I'm not ashamed. But I do think that the voices I hear have come from the past. And this time she followed me up at once. You mean otherworldly voices? I didn't reply, I couldn't. Having released the notion of it, I regretted it. All Dr. Cranach had done was to confirm to me that something was wrong. I had picked up on it, tuned into it somehow. I could suddenly hear the malfunctioning of the world. I was being let in on some universal secret. There was something I was supposed to do. If only I could understand their strange and eccentric message. Hal took the notebook from his pocket and wrote, Gonna shave first, then join you in the bath. Run a deep one. I didn't want him to. I feared that his presence would scare them off. He was always so impatient and unable to keep himself together. He'd always been the more emotional of the two of us, the more sentimental, even histrionic. I sensed that they didn't like that. They needed the peace of a silent type, only dared emerge when there was utter calm. He held my face in his hands and looked into my eyes. I watched his lips move, more interested in the latent mechanics of speech than the outpouring. How closely I'd watched his face that day on the platform, how keenly I'd been listening to him. There were so many people around us because the trains were delayed and a kind of communal irritation bound us all together. But how intently I had observed him and concentrated on what he was saying. I needed to hear him above the racket. I wanted to catch every word. And so I had stepped back to get a better look, to understand him all the more. I stepped back to take it all in. I ran a deep bath and climbed in watched the doorway for his arrival. When he came, he paused a moment, as though uncertain of his new territory. 
but then crossed the bathroom to the sink and turned the taps. I watched as he sprayed foam into his palm and stroked it across his cheek. His back was to me, and his right shoulder blade bounced up and down as his hand worked at removing a week's worth of beard. I took a deep breath and slipped entirely under. Oh, you know how it is. Some people are just like that. They don't have a care in the world for anyone else. It's heartbreaking. Shh, shh. I told you to keep your opinions private. Well, it's a little late for that, isn't it? That being said, nastiness is what it is. I can't hear you above the commotion anyway. All those hands flapping, all that screaming. I lifted myself from the water, haunted. The whispered words swarming in my head, their mortified tones, their sense of scandal. What happened here? That's what I wanted to know. What did they witness? Why were they recounting it all? Was the sound of it so ingrained in the fabric of the place that it was amplified in its water? I was in a house that never wanted me here, that didn't want anyone here. And I was being told, warned, to leave it. They wanted me to see what they had seen. They knew I would understand, eventually. The steam hung about me, sat on his back in droplets, and I watched as his arm went up and down, up and down, and listened to the scrape of blade against skin, scrape after scrape, the abrasive progress of metal dragging across something softer, more fragile. I lay in the water and I listened to that scrape after scrape, and slowly the mechanics of it simply reminded me that I could hear now, that nothing was silent anymore, and that he was talking and that if I listened, I could know everything of how he felt. Christ, I look so old. This place is dragging me down. Only got it to make you happy. And you're never fucking happy. Never. I watched his left arm this time as it reached up and found something on his forehead. God, if I pull another grey hair, I'll be bald. And he turned and looked at me. And the smile, I now realised, was not affectionate at all. But simply querying asking me why I didn't understand his appalling lot, his pain, why I had brought him to this. He came over and looked down at me in the bath. I tried to catch hold of his eyes with mine, hold on to him somehow. I ask you every day, every fucking day, why did you do it? I could see a tear now, and I could hear the frustration the agony of a man who loved someone he shouldn't, who couldn't let her go despite hating her, who wanted to believe that he didn't hate her, that love would return if he willed it. He looked down on someone he only dreamt he could love. And I had seen that tear when I had told him, as we stood on the platform, to pull himself together. I had heard the same frustration. It had just been a normal conversation, the usual one. The lament over, why didn't we have children? He told me that he'd read about a clinic 
a place where we might finally find some success. And I listened and watched his mouth open and close, open and close. And I laughed at him with pity. Yes, with pity. And I told him, I said, oh, how give up now. You might as well know. I've had two terminations since we've been together. This is as good a place as any to tell you. I had watched the eyes widen and felt the fist clench around my arm. And I felt the push. The sudden push. The violent act of a man who realised he'd been loving the wrong woman. So heroically loving the wrong woman. He moved towards me now as I lay in the bath, and I heard them. They said that she'd pull him under, that she'd be the ruin of him one way or another. He was reaching out his arms. I feared he wanted to push me down and keep me there, with his hands around my throat. I did. I genuinely did. I had to fight back this time. I grabbed him, held him by his hair, pulled him down towards me sharply. And all the while, while he kept his eyes on mine, his wide eyes... He fell forward, and I heard the crack as his head hit the edge of the bath. Moved aside for him. Let him sink. Let him go under. It was his turn to fall. It was his turn to know silence. Berkey, read by Camilla Simpson, Jessica Sherman, and Mark Lingwood. Music by Timothy Bond. Studio production Francis Nutbeam Webber. Mm-hmm.